You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. The verse uh, 2911, I guess it is, or whatever. I know the plan's not going to have a Sure. Okay. I think you kind of touched on this before. But oh, probably. Verses um, that we look at and how we really need to take them out of, not take them out of context. And sure. Everything. And I was thinking as we were reading that, you know, who he's really talking to there. Uh-huh. And then I think how we take that verse and we use that as... Let's slap it on a mug and sell it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's slap it on a mug and sell it. exactly. Let's put it on a t-shirt. Devotional on that for a girls' basketball team, and I've thought about that, and I thought, okay, did I totally take that out of context? So let's read it. Not God's yeah, so let's read it real quick. Is uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Okay, that makes a great T-shirt. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So here's the thing from those of you who endured my Genesis class. Um, I have a little saying. I have a lot of sayings, a lot of, a lot of opinions. Uh, the uh, never read a Bible verse. You remember that? We don't ever want to read a Bible verse because Bible verses are connected to other verses. We want to we read scripture. Remember what I talked about taking big bites. We want to read in chunks. We want to know what we call context. And what the context means is, first of all, the surrounding verses. So how do we take a big bite of that scripture? But how do we also know the context of the people that it's written to? Okay, so we talked in my Genesis class about where meaning comes from. Meaning comes from the author. Meaning doesn't come from us the reader. So if we remember, there's, there's three participants when we read scripture. I drew this on the board every week when we study Genesis, right? So this is like Bible study methods 101. So here's our author. Here's scripture. Here's the original audience. And here's us today. Okay. And also in between here, we could even put historical Christianity. In other words, do you guys do know that there were Christians who lived before us? Like... Christianity wasn't embedded in 1969. Are we all clear on that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't invented in the Jesus movement. Um, So here we have these. These are our participants. Here is where meaning comes from. Meaning comes from the author. So a text cannot mean what the author did not intend for it to mean. Now, meaning doesn't meaning goes this way. The author writes the scripture, it goes to the original audience, and then it gets understood in history, and it comes down to us today, okay? So 
The, who's the secondary author here besides the human author? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit superintends the process, but he, he uses the human author and he incorporates the human author's uh, personality and, and his education and all of that into creating the text. Now, we live in what's called postmodernism. You all right? Any of you guys ever heard of postmodernism? And in the postmodern concept, I'm going to use a different color here. Meaning goes this way. I'm the center of the meaning. Meaning starts with me. My context, my experience, my life, what I think is true, what seems right to me, what seems sensible to me. I read that into the scripture. I don't really even need to worry about this over here. This is, this is how this works. So, because meaning, and this is all kind of started in the 60s, and we could go through all of the, the um, development of postmodernism as a literary theory, because it really started as a literary theory in the 1960s. And... Um, there's a famous book called Is There a Text in This Class by Stanley Fish, and he's a, a philosopher of language. And boy, if you really want to fall down the rabbit hole, that's, that's a great place to go. Um, so it's basically how texts themselves don't actually exist. Everything that exists is in the mind of the reader. And the only thing that, that is true is what's in the mind of the reader and our own experience, and our own culture, and where we're at. Is this making sense? So then we get in this weird thing in our culture where physical reality doesn't even matter. Okay? So then you have people who, um, uh, I won't even go there, but that's like a whole weird manifestation in our culture. But, all right, so postmodernism. So here's how this manifests in the church. Have you ever been in women's Bible study or men's Bible study or whatever Bible study? And you read a scripture and you go, all right, now we're going to go around the circle and everyone say, what does this passage mean to you? And then you say, well, to me, it means blah, blah, blah. And then person next to you says, well, to me, it means X, Y, Z. And then this person says, well, to me, I didn't get that at all. To me, what it means is ABC. Has anyone ever experienced this is called postmodernism in the church. And this is the idea that meaning can be something different for me than it is for Ginger, right? Or Shell, or Dean, or Melinda. We could all have different meanings. Now, the classical historical Christian position is no, no, no. There's only one meaning, and that comes from the author and is expressed through the text. And I have this hard job of going, I've got to kind of understand all of this stuff, the original audience, the historic, the, how it's been his, interpreted in history. I've got to know a lot of stuff here. I'm going to have some homework, right? So meaning cannot be multiple things to multiple people. There's only one right meaning. Now, I'm not just suggesting that I have all the right meanings. That's why we need community. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. 
That's why we need to know a few things and to do some homework. And this is critical, is knowing how this passage was interpreted historically. And I've tried to bring that into this class. We're not going to invent new doctrines in this class. We're going to keep asking the question, how has this historically been understood? That is, because they're much closer to the writing of this than I am. Does that make sense? And they don't have a bunch of postmodern garbage floating around in their mind that they're not even aware of. So, okay, so to go back to your point, where does meaning come from? Well, it comes from Jeremiah and the Holy Spirit. And so the context then for the scripture is who was the original audience? What was that word to them originally? So who was the original audience in Jeremiah? The exiles. The exiles. These, these Jewish people who have sinned grievously over centuries engaged in idol worship God is stripping them down and he's going to punish them for 70 years but they're going into that punishment with a promise and what is this promise I know the plans I have for you plans to prosper you and not harm you plans to to have a hope and a future then you will call upon me and come pray to me and I will listen to you you will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jesus is base, or God is basically a parent saying, I'm going to put you in time out for 70 years and then I'm going to bring you back and you can play with your toys but for for you know you got to sit over here and kind of think about some things you need to be waiting as pastor John said this morning right but he doesn't want them to despair in their waiting he's not a parent who's angry and forgotten them he hasn't locked them in the closet and walked away he's not an abusive parent he's saying you're going to be waiting. You're in time out. You've had a lot of sin. You've had a lot of warnings. Ever warn your kid like a lot of times and then you're like, okay, I'm done. You're over here now and I'm walking away. You know, you're in your room. This is what you're doing, right? Because you've given them a ton of warnings already. They didn't heed the warnings. But he doesn't want them to despair. He's saying, I still love you. There's still hope for you. I'm going to bring you back. And so that was a word of a promise for them that they could have okay so that's our original audience so how does that impact us today so one of our interpretive principles that we've talked about in the past is how do we know the Old Testament applies to us today well we look for things that are repeated you remember that we've gone through that before we look through for things that are repeated so is this promise or something like this promise ever repeated in the New Testament? Can you think of something? There is a thread of scripture that when God's people disobey him, he doesn't just give up on them. What does he try to do? He does things to try to warn us, to bring us back. He makes a plan. I was, was in particular thinking of Hebrews 12, where it talks about um, endure hardship as discipline, God is teaching you as sons, 
For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our father disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So there's certainly an idea of God as our heavenly father disciplining us, but not doing it in a way to bring us to um, such a place of depression and remorse and resentment against him as father, but that he's a loving father. So that would be something to explore, Ginger, that... You know, is this a timeless principle that God doesn't abandon his people, that he does discipline them sometimes, but he has a pathway back to fellowship to him? Um, I think that reading that verse without any context or discussion that, that, that it's a promise for the Israelites is, would be neglectful, but at the same time, I'm not sure that the general principle that it outlines is altogether inconsistent with our identity as sons. Um, so I don't know. That, those are kind of my reflections about that. Yeah, and that's wonderful because it's not into destruction, right? Yeah. Which we can now really contrast the enemy who plans for destruction, but the Lord never has an ultimate destruction. He has a restoration. He's always got a restoration yeah. plan. But he's waiting for us. I, I think that's one of the, the beauty of the idea of repentance. See, repentance is God's rest, plan of restoration. We can always turn back. As long as you're still breathing, there's hope. Yeah. You know, there, there's a person in my life who's in his 70s, and he needs to repent. But he's still breathing, so there's hope. Okay. <laughs> there might be a plan. Okay. Right? But there, but there's, it's, it's a question of, um, you know, what is our relationship with the father? And if we're a son, we have a special relationship with the father mm-hmm. that he always has a way back to him. And I think that that is kind of the picture of Israel there. I think if you're taking an Old Testament passage, I always try to look for a repetition of that in the New Testament, and I know I'm on safe ground, safer ground with that as a promise for the believer. There are some things we've talked about in the past that are not repeated in the New Testament. Like, for example, Jesus is now our priest. We don't have human priests. It's been replaced. Jesus is our sacrifice. That's why we don't offer sacrifices. That's been replaced. So some things are repeated. Some things are replaced. Some things are changed. The issue of the Sabbath has been changed, according to Hebrews chapter 4. The standard of adultery is higher now than it was in the Old Testament, according to Matthew. Now, if you look on a woman in lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. That's an even higher standard. So the, the, the relationship between the Old and New Testaments, something we have to be very careful and circumspect about how we go about that. If we were to change and reverse this, 
how would people from long ago understand us? Yes. Because we talk a completely different language in the sense of technology, and they would not understand us. So how can we understand them completely? Yeah. And by explaining a, a verse or make, saying, oh, it means this, well, it was a totally different situation. But, yeah. You know, and so that's why I think that it's important to understand that there's actually two authors. The Holy Spirit stands outside of time, and he sees everything. So one of the geniuses, I think, about Scripture is that um, it reflects universal truths that are true in all times and all places to all people. That's, to me, a, a strong evidence of the supernatural origin of Scripture, it's not so esoteric that you cannot understand it. Now, do, is it helpful for us to have some classes like this to teach and to understand the ancient culture and talk about Judaism? And you know, Yeah, that's, that's helpful information. But even when I was a, a young convert as a teenager, I could read the Bible. I could at least read the epistles and the gospels and kind of get the big idea of what was happening and what was important, that loving my neighbor was a good thing, forgiving people was, a, was something Jesus taught. Um, there was this concept called the church, and I was connected spiritually to these other people. I could understand certain big ideas. That's what we call in Protestant theology the perspicuity of Scripture, that anyone can read it and kind of understand the big ideas. We don't need a special person to explain it to us. Now, does it help if you have some education and you can explain some of the details? Some of you guys asked such wonderful, awesome, detailed questions. Well, that's when my education kind of helps me because I've been on this rodeo now for 25 years. But uh, it's so you have to kind of differentiate between the details. Like sometimes there's details of things my education helps me, and then I can help others. But the big picture concepts to me are so transcultural and transcend time. That's why we have things like Wycliffe Bible translators that can translate these things into other contexts, and people can understand them. And there's parts of Scripture they, that people that are preliterate actually understand better than us. And I think that um, every, every culture has our challenges. Every, it's what I call every culture has our own cultural sins that the scripture has to transform and we have to let the scriptures transform us. Have you ever thought about like what we believe? It's a pretty crazy story. That God came down in human flesh, walked around on the earth, pronounced that we could, we could come into fellowship with the one true creator of the universe by believing that we did wrong things, and he wants to, and then he, he dies on a cross on a, in a Roman crucifixion, and that somehow that has spirit, something happens in the spirit realm that affects me. I mean, you, you do realize that most of our faith is happening in the spirit realm, right? It's like it doesn't really manifest in the physical realm a whole lot. But we're preaching a message that something, hap something happened in the physical of a guy dying on a Roman cross and then something changed me in the spirit realm. Right. That is a crazy story. <laughs> that is a super crazy story. And when, we're, when you read these words of Jesus here in John 3, I mean, that's like, he doesn't leave a lot to the imagination that you're on one side or the other. 
it's not this, this narrative of like, hey, it's okay, I'll accept everybody. No, it's you're here or you're here. What's your stand? Get clear about where you are. And you might even think that you're in the light, when this is the warning to the Pharisees, you might think you're in the light, but you're actually on the side of evil. You have to be circumspect about evaluating yourself and where you are.